Okay, Matthew 11. We're going to be looking at this today. Response and rest. Response and rest. If you remember last week, we ended in verses 16 through 19 with Jesus telling a little parable, a little story about children playing in the marketplace. And what Jesus was doing was comparing the generation to which he was ministering with obstinate children who would not go along with what was happening. And what was happening, of course, was the breaking in of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And really the the new covenant that was promised in the Old Testament was entering in. John the Baptist was the forerunner and the prophet, and Jesus was the Messiah, sort of the main event. But as we saw in Jesus' words, many refused to believe. Many refused to follow and to accept it. And that story then was really a question. Will you get on board with what God is doing or what he has done, we could say? Will you be a tender child, a a child of wisdom, as we read in that text, or a stubborn, an obstinate child? You see, to this point in Jesus' ministry, the opportunities for belief and faith had been rich and abundant. At no other time in history was this much of God's wonder and power displayed. The mighty works being done, the works that Jesus pointed John the Baptist back to, they were clear signs of Jesus as Messiah. And they were clear indicators that he was more than just a man. Now, we might look back and read through the Gospels and say, How could these people see all of this and not believe? But the unbelief remained. It could be many reasons. For many, Jesus didn't fit the bill as sort of a political Messiah or a kingly Messiah in that he didn't set up his actual rule on earth at that point. For some, Jesus didn't fit the bill as a strict lawyer or judge. But for many... As John said, though Jesus is the light, we read in John 3 that they love darkness rather than light. And with that little story about the children, Jesus pronounced this. He said, wisdom is justified by her deeds. That is to say, those with godly wisdom, the kind of wisdom that Matt read from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 a minute ago, those with that kind of wisdom are shown in that they follow the Lord. But in the generation Jesus was speaking to, they showed that they did not, including the religious leaders. Well, Jesus goes on to say more than that. And we're going to pick up in verse number 20 this morning and read through the end of the chapter. So let's do that. Matthew 11, verse number 20 and following. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. 
For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In this passage are some of Jesus' most comforting and peaceful words. Yet right before those words are some of Jesus' most sharp and pointed words. Within the same passage are words of blessing and invitation, but they contrast words of woe, words of concealing, Words of condemnation, even. We think about what Jesus is saying in terms of opportunity. I ask you this question. Do you know that each day matters? Each moment matters. Each opportunity, each turn of season and change of state, each conversation and thought and attitude, do you realize that they all matter? They all have implications beyond the moment, beyond the hour, beyond the day. That's the picture that Jesus is drawing in this teaching. Great light leads to great responsibility, culpability even, which makes his invitation to come to me all the more critical. In his day, many were enamored by the miracles but they walked away never having heeded that call to come to me, to take my yoke, learn of me, follow me, like he says in this passage. Many were impressed by feedings and works, but they're all faded with the passing seasons, it seems. Do you know that right now counts forever? And that's a big statement, you might say. But the intensity and depth of Jesus' words in this passage, they really call for that kind of a question. The light of the revelation of Jesus Christ is the greatest opportunity that a person ever receives. It's the greatest opportunity to hear and to see the words of Jesus, to learn about him. That is the greatest opportunity. Now, many walk away unaffected by that. But what about you? What about me? Here's the big idea for today. To the proud and arrogant, Jesus says, woe. But to the weak and weary, Jesus says, come. So may you heed the call of the gentle and lowly master. We see response and we see rest. 
the response, of course, that we see uh, Jesus is speaking of the towns in his day and how they reacted to his works. And we see that principle that great light brings responsibility or, or culpability. Verse number 20, then he began to denounce. The word then, uh, Matthew loves to use this word. It's more than just showing what's happening next. It's also wrapped up in it is purpose. It's like saying what Jesus did next is because of what he just did. So we could say that because Jesus just told this story about the little children in the marketplace, then because of that, he gave this pronouncement. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. If you're following along in their outline, we see three towns in Galilee, three towns, three cities, really villages. They're all near the Sea of Galilee, and he makes them an example. And we read through the text, and you probably saw these names. You saw the name Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. We're going to go out of order for a minute. Capernaum is the most well-known. That was really Jesus' home base. He called it his own city in Matthew 9. We read that just not long ago. It's the most well-known ministry place of Jesus up to this point in Matthew. It's most likely here that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, a nobleman's son in John 4, the centurion's servant in Matthew 8, a paralyzed man in Matthew 9, cast out an unclean spirit in Mark 1, and raised Jairus' daughter and healed the woman with the discharge of blood. These are selected examples and nowhere near all the works that Jesus did there, but think of all of that that took place in Capernaum, an amazing amount of work that Jesus had done, signs that he had shown. And that's not to mention his teaching in the fact that he, he lived there, dwelled there among the people. Now, Bethsaida, we know a little about. It's a town also on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Philip, Andrew, and Peter were from Bethsaida, according to John chapter 1. And Chorazin is the least known place. It was two miles from Capernaum, so it was right nearby, but we don't hear anything really about it in the New Testament. What's interesting is the fact that we hear so little about these other cities Yet Jesus himself recognizes them as places where most of his mighty works were done. It tells us just how much more Jesus did than we have written down. John in one place sort of exclaiming about this says that if all of these things had been written, the books in all the world wouldn't contain them. We know that Jesus did an immense amount of miracles and teaching. But Jesus uses these cities as examples. These towns received what you could imagine as an intense laser beam of light from God shining directly into their eyes, as it were. The God-man himself came down, dwelled there, healed, taught, raised the dead, cast out demons, all the signs that had been promised, they were focused in on these little towns. And what is the lesson that Jesus is teaching here? Well, Matthew says he began to denounce these towns because even though all of these mighty works had been done in them, 
they did not repent, verse 20 says. We find that Jesus wasn't looking for fame or even approval in his ministry. He was looking for real heart change, real repentance. We've talked quite a bit about repentance. It's a change of mind and disposition toward God that leads to a real change in one's entire life. The works of Jesus were to be signs for the people. Signs for the people who saw them, received them, witnessed them, but they didn't follow the signs. The message of both John and Jesus was repent for the kingdom is at hand. And the signs that Jesus did said, the Messiah is here. He's here. But the response, at least on the part of many, was nothing. Indifference at best and rejection at worst. Now, of course, this this sweeping condemnation doesn't rule out individuals because we've already said that, that Peter, Andrew, and Philip came from Bethsaida. So certainly there were individuals who did follow Jesus. That is not to say that nobody did. But just as a sweeping condemnation doesn't rule out the individuals who did repent, it also doesn't take away the fact that individuals ignored the signs and didn't repent. Jesus was after people individuals, and by and large, in these towns, they refused to listen. Next we see, though, three cities of history, because Jesus is making a lesson of comparison, a comparison of those three towns, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, in Israel, in Galilee, to three foreign cities from Israel's history. Also, as we read down through the passage, you heard these names, Tyre and Sidon, and then Sodom. The pronouncement that Jesus is making is woe. He says, woe to you. And again, woe to you, which is a statement of horror. It's it's really like onomatopoeia. It's a word that sounds like what it's trying to say. It was an expression, a Jewish, Jewish expression of, of disaster, of grief. There's a sense of compassion and empathy of warning in Jesus' words, woe to you. And Jesus looks back on the history of his people and points out these three cities that they would have known and recognized, three cities that would have been burned into their minds from listening to the scriptures and the accounts of their ancestors. And what Jesus says about these places is remarkable. If they would have been given the opportunity that this generation had, they would have repented. And Jesus knows this because he is their maker. Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. Tyre and Sidon were important cities. Uh, They were port cities on the Mediterranean Sea. They were some very significant cities in the Phoenician territory. But to Israel, they were images of unbelief, of idolatry, and of arrogance, the pride of warfare and destruction. We won't turn here today, but you can drop this down. In Isaiah 23, most of the chapter is given to an oracle about Tyre and Sidon. And when you read it, it's an oracle of shame and dishonor. 
In Ezekiel 26, there is a prophecy against the city of Tyre in which the Lord says, I am against you. Pretty sharp words. And in Amos 1, there's a prophecy of a judgment of fire against the city of Tyre. And what about Sodom? Well, we read about Sodom in Genesis 18 and 19. It was regarded as one of the most, and still is one of the most wicked cities in history. It's still used as a byword and a descriptor for particularly heinous immorality. And if you remember in that account in Genesis, Abraham's nephew Lot had moved to that region because it was well-watered, well-suited for raising cattle. But God had purposed to destroy it because of the wickedness. And you remember the conversation that Abraham had with the Lord? It was pretty amazing. Abraham tried to bargain a bit. He said, Lord, if there are 50 righteous men in Sodom, will you destroy the city? And interestingly enough, God said, no, if there are 50 righteous men, I will not destroy it. Well, then Abraham backed off his number a little bit. He said, what about 45? And God said, yes, if there are 45 righteous men, I will not destroy it. What about 20? Yes, for 20, I will save it. What about 10? For the sake of 10? And God said, no, for the sake of 10, if there are 10 righteous people, I will not destroy it. Yet we know the fate of Sodom. It was indeed destroyed in fire and brimstone. It's forever burned into our minds as a city of wickedness and destruction, which makes Jesus' words all the more potent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Again, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works had done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. These words, they would have been shocking. They are shocking. More tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, those wicked cities, more tolerable for Sodom? How can this be? We see the light, the light that left them excuseless. Jesus makes it clear, if the works done in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, the miracles Jesus had done, the healings, the deliverance, the raising of the dead, the opening of the blind eyes had been done in those cities, Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, then those people would have had more of a heart of repentance than the people in Jesus' own towns. The works were to be signs. Just like Jesus told John when he sent his disciples back, remind John of the works that he had seen. They were signs of the Messiah, signs of the new covenant, signs that God himself was on the scene and working, but the signs were missed. Missed at best and ignored at worst. Now in verse 23, Jesus highlights something important for our understanding of what exactly was going on in the minds of these people. He says to Capernaum specifically, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works had been done in you, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained. 
you see of Capernaum at least, and I don't know if this applies to the other cities, but we might be able to assume that, of Capernaum at least, Jesus indicts them for their pride. And he uses a quote from Isaiah 14 to illustrate it. Listen to these words, Isaiah 14, 13 to 15. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. This was a word of the prophet Isaiah against the king of Babylon. Again, another wicked unbelieving figure who had exalted himself in his own mind to be the highest of all, even above the most high God. That is idolatry to the greatest extent, to raise yourself above God in your thinking. And this is what Jesus pronounces about Capernaum. He uses that same passage and applies it to them and says, will you be exalted to heaven? And then he gives them the same prophecy that Isaiah gave to that king of Babylon. Rather, you will be brought down to hell. They had received the light, the true light of Jesus' works, of his teaching, of his ministry. The light came into the world, John 3 tells us, but the men loved darkness rather than light. This is the condemnation. This is the judgment, John 3, 19. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. This is the greatest condemnation that can be stated. The condemnation of ignoring and rejecting the light of Jesus Christ. That is why for these Jewish cities, cities which were full of religious people, their condemnation is worse than Tyre and Sidon and even Sodom. The faithlessness and unbelief of those towns was worse in Jesus' estimation than the outright wickedness of those three condemned cities. What does that tell us about the importance of belief, the importance of responding to the light of Jesus? Well, it tells us much, but a few things. One is it tells us that having a religious heritage does not equate to a right standing before God. These cities in Galilee were cities where most of the people could trace their lineage back to Abraham himself. Yet their heritage itself would bode them no benefit on the judgment day. Another thing it tells us is being intrigued by religious things doesn't earn you a right standing before God either. No doubt Jesus' miracles were astonishing and intriguing for thousands, but in the final analysis, for many, there was no faith. There was no following, and as Jesus points out here, no repentance. Third thing it tells us is that unbelief is a sin, and it is a sin that's forgivable but it requires that one respond to that light of Jesus Christ that has been given to you. Uh, Friends, we live in an age of information, but more than that, 
we live in a culture where we're surrounded by opportunities for belief. We live in a nation where the gospel of Jesus is and can be preached openly. Within our, within our own county, there are scores of churches you could attend that share the light of Jesus Christ. We have no lack of opportunity. What have you done with that light that you have received? Furthermore, scripture tells us that all men are without excuse because even the creation itself proclaims that there is an almighty creator. I urge you to consider these things. Consider where you stand with the Lord. And the question is, have you come to him? Because as we move on to verse 25 and following, that is the opportune question or really the imperative that Jesus gives in the next section. Now, as we read these verses, 25 through 30, Jesus is kind of multitasking here because he's praying a prayer of praise to the Father. He's teaching about himself and his relationship to the God, the Father. And then he brings that great and sweet invitation at the end to those who have ears to hear. Let's look at this together. First, we see the prayer to the Father. Read verse 25 with me. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. We find a parallel to this in, in Luke chapter 10. It gives us a little confirmation that, yeah, Jesus did pray this. And notice how he addresses God. He says, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. There's a recognition both of, of God's fatherly love and care, but also of his supreme authority. Now, Jesus has already taught us to pray like this in the Sermon on the Mount. He taught us to pray, our Father. But he also taught us to pray, your will be done, your kingdom come. To approach God as our Father, the most endearing form of relationship, yet here even Jesus, the unique Son of God, also recognizes his authority. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. In this case, the authority is authority to hide and to reveal. He says these things, which immediately would be the works, the signs that Jesus did. In the greater context would be Jesus' message and the Messiahship. We could say the gospel itself. We learn from the mouth of Jesus himself that it's part of God's gracious will to both reveal and hide his truth. And we do, do well to be reminded of this, that if any of us receive and respond to the light of the truth, it's because of the grace and goodness of God. We can take no credit for our coming to faith, for our repentance. We come, as Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, as poor in spirit, as meek, as hungry, as cast down. But by God's grace, we are blessed. By God's gracious will, he has flipped the script on how things usually operate. Because in this case, the wise and understanding 
It's hidden to them. The wise and understanding in this case seem to be the the self-sufficient. They are those who don't need Jesus, his works, and his message. They look at him and they say, I'm all set. They're like that city Capernaum, which Jesus said had lifted themselves up in their thinking. And maybe the question for you is, are you in that place? Are you in that place of looking at what God has done and saying, I don't need that? That was the condemnation against Capernaum. They lifted themselves up in their thinking above God himself. And of course, they would have never said that. But in looking at Jesus, at God's son, and saying, I don't need him, that's exactly what they were doing. Matt read from 1 Corinthians 2 earlier. I want to read a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians 1 because Paul is speaking about this, this idea of being wise in this sense. The word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the, discerning of the, the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom or their wisdom, it pleased God that through the folly of what we preach, the gospel, to save those who believe. Earthly wisdom says, I've figured it out. I have a plan for my life. I know how things work. I have a system. And they look at God and say, I don't need him. I don't need his righteousness. I don't need his help. And that is the attitude, the, the person from which Jesus says God hides these things. We read also from James, there's some particular insight here where he says in James 4, 6, but he, God, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James quotes from the Proverbs there, and it's an astonishing quote. It says, God opposes the proud. Not that God ignores the proud or he doesn't prefer the proud. Rather, it says, God opposes actively the proud. It's the same case in Jesus' words here. Both are action words. God hides action hides these things from the wise and understanding, and he reveals action, them to children, to babies. Now, lest we get too enamored with God's hiding work here, which is something he does, may we not miss and ignore the wonder of his grace in revealing. Because every person who has come to the Lord is a person who has come to him as a little child, and I'm not talking about the age of which you accepted the Lord as your Savior. I'm talking about in your mind, before God, you came at your lowest. When you were at the end of yourself, when you know you had no understanding or wisdom or ability or righteousness of your own, God's grace swoops in with the light of the truth. It floods and illuminates our soul like never before. It's a miracle of grace that we cannot comprehend. We can't conjure it up. 
We can't produce it ourselves, but God has wrought a mighty work. And it's a work of his gracious will to reveal these things. Praise the Lord for his grace. After this prayer, Jesus takes an opportunity to teach his listeners because this has to do with him as well. We read verse 27, it says, All these things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and any to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus started his prayer by highlighting the authority of the Father, Lord of heaven and earth, and here he tells us that this authority has been handed over to him. It's much like what Jesus is going to say in Matthew 28. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. And we learn two things from Jesus' statement. One, only the Father truly knows the Son, and only the Son truly knows the Father. They're in a category by themselves. They're uh, an exclusive mutual knowledge. One one, uh, pastor that I read this week used that term. From before time... Eternity past, the Godhead has dwelt in perfect love and unity, in knowledge and full relation. And this is the mystery of the Trinity. We can't even comprehend it, but it's one God in three persons. And they're distinct in operation, but they're equal in power and glory. And Jesus is saying, I know the Father. I know him truly and deeply. All the wisdom and joys and glories and power and plans, I know them. But, and here's where that grace breaks in, Jesus, in his authority, reveals the Godhead to everyone he chooses to reveal him to. And there it is, that same grace and sovereignty that we saw in the Father, now we see it in the Son. The authority and grace to transfer knowledge, which is, Not just head knowledge, but an intimate relationship to everyone he chooses to. This is God's grace. Have you received the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ? If you have, it's because of his work. And we should rejoice in that. We were blind, but received sight by grace. We were dead, it says in scripture, but received life by grace. We are natural born, but as Jesus taught Nicodemus, we have new birth by the gracious will of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, with with that authority to reveal truth in mind, then Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He turns from teaching to pleading in a way that only Jesus can do. After telling everyone that's his, it's his gracious authority to reveal himself, he reaches out and he says, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy burdened. We don't have tons of time to elaborate on this. Wish we had more. But the heavy burden... I believe Jesus is speaking of is a burden that he would go on to speak about quite a bit. And it was the burden of the scribes, the Pharisees, and the lawyers. Just a couple references. Luke 11, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. 
uh, reading down, he says, one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And another place in Matthew 23, you can jot these down, uh, verses 1 through 8. Jesus says about the Pharisees that they tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear and lay them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Who are the weary and the heavy laden? It's the people, the, the regular people, the people that had heavy loads of this kind of religion, mostly man-made. They had deviated from God's ways. The regular people who could not bear up under the weight of the Pharisees and the lawyers. The, the regular people like the tax collectors and the sinners, the ones who Jesus came to, the ones who knew they were in need, that they were insufficient but they could find no help, no rest in the religion of that day. A strict, mostly man-made moral code that Jesus said neglected justice, mercy, and God's love. You see, each person in existence looks for some way to be freed from their guilt, from their burden. And we don't live in Jesus' day with, with the Pharisees and the lawyers but we do face pressures in our, in our day to justify ourselves. And we, we have heavy burdens on our shoulders that tell us, well, if you will accomplish this, then you can have a sense of freedom. If you compare yourself to somebody else and find yourself better, well, then you can find justification in that. We have messages told to us that if we simply try not to offend then we will be justified. Or if we move to a more acceptable social or moral position, then, then that's the key to being on the, in the right place. We look for, for relief in increasing our self-image. We look for relief in increasing our belongings. We look for relief and approval in the applause of peers or family. But whatever system a person may seek to justify themselves, and to rid themselves of this guilt and burden, they are all insufficient because they all lack the grace of Christ who says, come to me, all you who are weary, who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he really says three things. He says, come to me. It's a call of grace. Come to me. He's revealing himself. Even in this moment, as we read these words, he's saying, come to me. It's also a call of change. He says, take my yoke upon you. A, a yoke is an implement of, of burden. But Jesus says his burden is light, not one of the yoke of religion and not one of the yoke of culture, but the yoke of Christ, which is the yoke of love and grace. And it's also a call of discipleship because he says, learn from me. Come to me, take my yoke and learn from me. Because I, he says, am gentle and lowly in heart. We find here a Christ who is compassionate, gentle, and lowly. 
This is the son of God, the one who reveals the father to us, which tells us this is our God, a compassionate God. And this is our savior, a savior who comes to lay down his life, a shepherd who gives everything for his sheep, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, a teacher who calls fishermen rather than academics, the Lord who does not arrogantly rule, but lovingly leads, the maker who doesn't despise his own creation and its sin, but rather enters into it to redeem all those who will come to him. This is our gentle and lowly savior. And he calls out to those of you, those of us who are weak and burdened by the systems of this world or whatever we are trying to use to justify ourselves, to free ourselves. And he says, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. And the question is simple. Do you hear the voice of the gentle and lowly savior this morning even saying, come to me? Will you remain like those cities that Jesus condemned, the cities that ignored his light? Or will you come to him? Is he calling you? Uh, I can't answer that question for you in the moment. I know he is calling, but I would love the opportunity to speak with you more about it. Are you a person who's always known these things, but for some reason they've, they've seemed insignificant, but maybe at this point you're considering these words in a new light? Come to me, he says. And Christian, those who have known and followed know as well that we are responsible to this call as well. Part of this call is to learn from him and follow him. May we not veer off the path of his yoke, which is easy and light, back to the path of our own systems, because only in him do we find rest. Lord, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your grace that's displayed so wonderfully in this passage. Thank you that even in light of this great evil that you pronounced, against these cities. Still, we see your compassion coming through, shining through like a laser of light. And may that light penetrate into our hearts today. Work the work that only you can do by your grace, for your glory. We thank you, Lord, that you are the gentle and lowly Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.